This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Well, here's sort of been the theme of the book of Titus that we've looked at every week, that grace produces godliness. That the grace of God, when we encounter his grace, that, that he changes us. Sometimes it's slow and over time, but God changes us so that, that we really are new people, that our behavior becomes different as we know Christ and are saved by him. So in chapter 2, what Paul said to Titus was that he was supposed to teach different people in the congregation uh, what godliness would look like in their lives. So he addressed the older men, and we went into some detail on this last week. He addressed the older men, uh, he addressed the older women, and also not only addressed them, but told them that they were to teach the younger women. So he addressed the younger women sort of through the older women, and then he addressed the younger men as well. So we looked at all of those. The, the, the one section we didn't get to was verse 9, where he speaks uh, and addresses slaves. Slavery was common uh, in the Roman Empire uh, during this time is very common. And so he says here, he addresses those on the island of Crete who were slaves but had been converted or Christians. He says, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, I'll say a couple things about this. Earlier, when Paul identified himself as a servant in verse 1 of chapter 1, it's the very same word. Uh, The word that's translated slave is also translated servant. So it had a broad range of meanings. When we think of slavery, we normally think of the evil uh, institution in our country uh, where people were enslaved. Um, or we think of perhaps those who are enslaved against their will and uh, perhaps sex trade or trafficking, that kind of slavery. And uh, so certainly the, the first kind, those who were slaves to a master, may be in view here. But there would be other kinds of folks that would be in view as well, servants, uh, indentured servants, which are people who, to pay off a debt, uh, work for someone for a period of time to pay off their debt. So that's an indebted servant for a period of time. Uh, sometimes even an apprentice with the same word was translated for an apprentice or even a domestic worker, like someone who just worked for someone around their house. Um, and so they as well. So this, this word is used broadly to mean a number of things. Probably what is in common in all of those, whether it's the, the most reprehensible kind that we think of where someone was bought as a piece of property, or whether it's someone who is sort of voluntarily paying off a debt for a period of time or something like that, they've entered into service for that purpose. Regardless, all of those people would have this in common, that someone else controls their life, that someone else tells them what to do, that someone else, that they answer to someone else uh, for everything in their lives. And so this is what he tells that group of people, these servants, these slaves. He tells them in their position as new Christians um, that grace should produce godliness in their lives and that it should look like this, that they should be well-pleasing. That is, they should work hard. They should seek to honor the, uh, the, the master that they are submitted to, that they should not be argumentative uh, they shouldn't, you know, talk back and forth and debate and argue and complain, gripe, that kind of thing. Verse 10, they should not pilfer, that is, they should not steal. Some of these servants, domestic workers, indentured workers, some of them actually had some of their own property. And so it'd be easy to, I've got my sheep and I'm watching his sheep as well, I'd take a few of his and make them mine. So it'd be easy for some of these workers to steal. He says, you should not steal. Uh, but show good faith. And why should they do this? So that in everything, they, the slaves, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That they may make the gospel appealing to the onlooker. That they may demonstrate the grace of God in their lives so that the person that watches them sees the attractiveness of the message of the gospel. 
So what he's saying is these slaves have encountered grace. They believed in Jesus. They are in an oppressive situation, an extremely oppressive or a relatively oppressive, but to some degree, they are in an oppressive situation. And so he says, in your situation, in your suffering, allow the gospel to change you so that you look different, that you may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, so that someone watching on would say, he's different. She's changed. She used to argue she doesn't anymore. He used to rip me off. Now everything is accounted for. He doesn't steal anymore so that you will represent the Savior. Now, a couple of things I want to say about this. One is that uh, slaves, even though they may have had a lower position in society, are called to be witnesses here. You know, the the passage doesn't go in and completely overturn the institution of slavery, but it does two things that are important. One is the passage recognizes that these slaves who may have had a lower role in society are witnesses for Jesus Christ, which is the most noble calling anyone can have. So they're to be witnesses. Secondly, what this passage does is, if you look at it in context, it puts the slaves on the inside... And it puts the masters, at least the unbelieving masters, on the outside. How does he do that? Well, he says that when you encounter the gospel, you should live a changed life, verse 10, so that you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You are to be a witness to whom? Who are they to be a witness to? Who are they to demonstrate the appealing nature of the gospel to? To their masters primarily, because you are no longer arguing with whom? Your master. You're no longer stealing from whom? Your master. You are now well-pleasing to whom? Your master. So he is in essence saying that you are now on the inside. You are, though society views you as lower, you are in the end group, the people of God redeemed for him, and you are to be a witness to those who are on the outside, who may have a higher level in society, but who are in darkness, who are dead in sin and who need the gospel. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. You live out the gospel because grace has come to everyone, even masters. The grace of God has come to everyone, even slave owners. So you slaves who are on the inside live for the glory of God because grace has come to everyone. And as they see your life, they too may become on the inside. That is among the people of God. So while it doesn't overturn the institution, he implicitly elevates, or explicit, really, really, elevates the slaves and shows that there is a different, a countercultural role that they play, where they, in fact, are witnesses. They are alive and represent Christ to those who are dead. So then we get to verse 11. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The the, the book is really about grace produces godliness. And here what he says is when the grace of God appears, lives change. When grace shows up, lives change. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 11 starts with the word for excuse me, verses 1 through 10 has talked about how each group of people is to live a a godly life. So here's what older men are to do. Here's what younger women are to do. Here's what older women are to do. Here's what younger men are to do. And then here's what slaves are to do. And then he goes on and he says, for, you're supposed to live all of that because of the grace of God, for the grace of God has appeared. So we're getting, here's how you should live. And then we're going to get, here's why you should live that way, because grace has appeared. Usually the Bible does the opposite. Grace has appeared. Jesus has come. So here's how you should live. It's kind of reversed in this chapter. Grace has appeared. The word appear is the same word we get our word epiphany from. You know, we use, I had an epiphany. We usually don't mean a vision of God when we say that. We mean like, ding, you know, I had a a light bulb went off over my head. I had an idea. It occurred to me, you know, oh, I just, I had a revelation, you know, or I, I became aware. That's what we call an epiphany. And that's what he's saying. The grace of God showed up. Out of nowhere, the grace of God appears, comes, ding, the grace of God manifests itself. And that is the basis for all Christian obedience is the grace of God. He wants these new churches in Crete to remember this. 
the word appear, that grace has come. This, this appearing is just God showing up, as it were. It can't be earned or deserved as well. The grace of God appears. Grace is a gift. Grace is what comes to those who don't deserve it. The grace is a gift to the ill-deserving. Grace is a gift of God to those who actually deserve his judgment. But he gives his grace instead. So this gift shows up. This gift, this undeserved gift, appears. There's an epiphany, and what is that epiphany? Well, it's Jesus Christ. He is the one who appears. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And it's this time of the year when we talk about Christmas and we talk about the coming of Jesus Christ, that his advent, his coming, advent means coming, uh, this verse is very much in line with that idea. Christ has come. The grace of God has appeared in a feeding trough. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ has become man and is lying in a manger. This, this verse 11 sounds a whole lot like what the angels say to the shepherds at Christmas. The angels appear to the shepherds after Jesus is born, and the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That's the same language. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, 10 through 11. So this day, a savior, that's one who brings salvation, verse 11, has appeared. He has come. It's the same kind of language. Jesus is the literal appearance of grace. Now, God was always gracious. He didn't just become gracious at Christmas, but grace showed up. Grace manifested itself. In God, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came as a gift. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He totally obeyed the, the, the Father's will. He died for our sins. He gave himself to demonstrate the love of the Father for us. This is what happens when grace shows up. He is demonstrating the love of the Father. He frees demonized people by casting demons out. He heals sick people. He even raised a couple of dead people at various points. He pushes back darkness, revealing the love of the Father, and he ultimately appears to br- and brings salvation by dying on the cross for our sins. He's buried. After three days, he's raised to life, defeating the power of sin, defeating the power of death. So Jesus comes... The perfect God-man, verse 11, he appears, he shows up, he manifests, bringing salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is to be saved. It's the same idea of being rescued. He shows up to rescue. So the appearance of grace is a rescuing grace. And now that grace, verse 12, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So here's what he's saying. Grace showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes to bring salvation, to give us new life. And once we receive that new life, that saving grace, that Savior's grace that appeared in Jesus is now teaching grace. It teaches us. It trains us. It schools us, we could say. Now that grace is teaching, training, and schooling us to say no to some things, and to say yes to some things. But we don't start with saying no and saying yes. We start with the Savior coming and rescuing. So here's a common idea of Christianity, that if I just avoid a lot of really bad things, if I don't do especially the big ones, don't kill anybody, uh, you know, don't steal, do some of the really big ones, if I avoid them and I do some good things, then I'll be okay with God. And so if I say no to some things, which he's about to say, if I say yes to some things, then I'll be okay with God. And that's not what he says. He says, grace appeared. That's a gift. He appeared bringing salvation, rescuing people. And then he says, after, in essence, after you've been rescued, then grace trains you to say no to some things and yes to some things. So we don't get cleaned up to come to God. Rather, he rescues us and cleans us up. I read a story. It's a true story. Um, 
but is, that somebody wrote that was an illustration of how this rescuing grace works. And it was a story about a family that lived in California. And I lived in California. My wife and I lived in California. All four of our kids were born there. So we lived in California for a lot of years. And one of the things about living in California that you just have to get used to is that there are a lot of natural disasters. And so we went through earthquakes and wildfires. I mean, just whole fields will burn, houses will burn, mountainsides will burn uh, with these uncontrollable wildfires. This happens every year. What You've seen it on the news. Um, and, and another one is sometimes they have mudslides as well. So all of these natural disasters when you live in California. Now, if you live in Dallas, the only natural disaster we have to tend with is uh, the Dallas Cowboys. That's our natural disaster. But in California, you have what they call acts of God that are, that are more devastating, as devastating as the Cowboys are. Uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's not an earthquake. So uh, this is a story that happened when there was mudslides. Sometimes they have an, what they call an El Nino effect, which is a ton of rain. And when there's a ton of rain, hillsides will give way, and there'll be these huge mudslides that at times will just take, you'll see, they'll just take vehicles down with them. It'll be like a, a stream of heavy mud uh, that's come off the side of a hill It'll just actually take cars, some buildings will just destroy, just huge destruction, huge force uh, when the mudslides began. And so there was this family, and uh, in the middle of the night, there's a mudslide that comes down the hill that rushes into their house that takes away, actually separated part of their house, took away part of their house, uh, and it was the part of the house that their baby was sleeping and took their baby uh, in the mudslide. And so the family panicked, is in the middle of the night, searching, looking, trying to find their child, and they cannot find their baby, which has been swept away in this devastating mudslide. And the next day, the family is outside, and there is a rescuer who is covered in mud, head to toe, walking towards their house, and he's carrying a bundle that appears to be mud as well. And when he reaches the family, the lady sees that he has found their baby who is still alive and survived the mudslide and is returning the child to the home. And uh, they clean the baby up and just cannot believe that God has spared their baby's life. And he says it's a really good illustration of what Jesus does. That Jesus comes into the mud, he comes into the mire, he comes into the muck, he comes into the devastation, he comes into the death of our lives, and he grabs us for his own, and he carries us to safety. And while that's a moving illustration, it really doesn't tell the whole story, does it? Because Jesus doesn't just grab us and take us to safety, he dies saving us. He dies in our place and gives us life. And when the woman received her baby back, she instantly, you know, kind of wipes up the baby and gets the baby clean. And the part of the story that I was reading, the guy was saying, that is what Jesus does. He, he saves us. He cleans us ultimately, declares us clean. And now he has rescued us from the mud. We don't want to run back into the mud. He has rescued us by his love, and now we don't want to be resoiled when we've really tasted of his love. When we've really experienced him, we realize that grace is intolerant of mud. I mean, can you even imagine how horrendous, how horrific, unthinkable it would be for that lady to take her baby and toss it back into the mud? Unthinkable. The baby has been rescued and saved, and now wants to be out. She wants her child out of the mud. And that's in this passage here when he says, say no to some things. Uh, the NIV says, he trains, grace trains us to say no to ungodliness. The ESV says it trains us to renounce, but it's the same idea. He's saying that we are to turn away from ungodliness. Now that we have been rescued, we are to leave ungodliness. We are to leave worldly passions. We are having been rescued out of the mud, not to run back into the mud. That was the dirt and the filth and the devastation and the death that we were caught up in sliding down, being carried away by it. We don't run back into the mud. See, the picture is not say no to a bunch of stuff, do everything, avoid all the bad stuff, do all the good stuff, and you'll be okay with God. The point is you were dead in the mud and Jesus came and gave his life and grabbed you out of it. Now, who would want to go back into the death? That's the picture. Say no to, un, uh, say no to um, 
verse 12, ungodliness. Train us to renounce ungodliness. Grace causes us to say no to being ungodly, which is to live against God. It is to live in unbelief. It means the way you lived before you met Christ. That was ungodly. That was against God. We lived for ourselves. We lived for our own passions and our own desires. We lived as if God didn't exist. We weren't living for his glory. We didn't love him. We didn't know him. We hadn't tasted the Father's love for us. We hadn't experienced the mercy and kindness of Jesus who gave his life for us. And so we were content to get all we could get, to to live for ourselves, to make ourselves happy, to do whatever it took to fulfill ourselves at the expense of others even sometimes. And so he's saying, do not live an ungodly life. You have a new heart. You have been declared clean. You have been rescued out of the mire and the muck and the dirt and the mud. So rid yourself, don't go back to your previous life, rid yourself of that. See, here's what the people he's writing to are like, well, he's writing to Titus, but here's what the people Titus is leading. Here's what they're like, verse 12 of chapter 1. It says, we've read this every week, just so we don't forget who this is being uh, written about and written to indirectly. One of the Cretans, these churches are on the Isle of Crete, a prophet of their own said, Cretans, quote, Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Lazy gluttons. That sounds like Thanksgiving weekend, doesn't it? So these are all, what the Cretans are is a lifestyle. They are lazy gluttons, evil beasts. They're deceptive. They lie. And so he's saying, once you have been rescued out of that lifestyle, don't go back to that lifestyle. Don't live an ungodly life. Renounce ungodliness. And secondly, renounce worldly passions. The grace of God trains us, teaches us, empowers us, equips us, enables us to say no to worldly passions. Now, what does that mean? The word passion is neutral. It's not a bad word. Uh, It doesn't mean that Christians aren't to be passionate. We are to be passionate. It doesn't mean to be a Christian, just get rid of your personality, just be dry. Hi, I'm a Christian. I have no passion whatsoever, but uh, don't you want to be like me? He's not saying, he's saying avoid worldly passions. We're to be passionate, but to be passionate for the rescuer, the one who rescued our lives for eternity. Be passionate for him and for what he's doing and for what his purposes are and for what brings honor and pleasure to him. Be passionate for that. Don't be passionate for the world. That is, don't be passionate for the ideologies and the values of a system that is opposed to God. Don't be passionate for living a life as if God doesn't exist, opposed to him. Don't live that kind of passion, but live a passion for God. So what kind of passions are those? Well, uh, especially in this world, the world they lived in, which is an extremely sensual culture. I mean, not unlike our own, I suppose, in that way. But certainly sexual passion is in view. That is illicit, sinful sexual passion. What, what is sinful sexual passion? It's a desire or actually having a sexual uh, relationship with someone that you're not married to. So sex is to be enjoyed, celebrated as a gift within marriage, but not outside of marriage. So, you know, sex out, uh, sexual relationships uh, outside of marriage would certainly be in view but there, but there's a lot of other passions. Anger can be a passion. Anger, which I don't, you know, when I want my way and when I don't get it, there's an impulse to, to be angry. So don't give yourself over, say no to angry passion. Pride can be a passion. Hatred can be a passion. We can be bitter or hate someone who has done us wrong, sinned against us. So say no to that kind of passion. The gospel frees us to say no to hatred, uh, to greed, to selfish ambition, all of these kind of worldly desires, which ultimately revolve around me getting my way, me living for my kingdom, living as if God doesn't exist. So when he says, the grace of God has rescued you, and now the grace of God is training you to say no to ungodliness and no to worldly passions, he's saying, grace, Jesus Christ has rescued you, so now don't live as if he doesn't exist and as if he's never rescued you. Don't live as if there is no God. He grabbed you and saved you at the cost of his own life. Don't forget that and live like you would have before. 
or live like everyone else who doesn't know him. So say no to some things, but also say yes to some things. Grace schools us, trains us, teaches us to say yes to self-control, living an upright life, and living a godly life. Well, a godly life is the opposite of an ungodly life. Um, obviously, uh, we're to live self-controlled. That is, that's a fruit of the spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us so that we, by God's grace and by his power can manage our impulses and desires. We're not animals. We don't have to give over to our desires, but we have a, a power that enables us to say no and to honor God and to say yes and to honor God. And that power is the Holy Spirit who lives within us, God himself. So he gives us self-control. He leads us to be upright. That is, we're to live lives that reflect the character of God, just like he said to the slaves. He says that you are to live in all good faith so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Live an upright life so that those around you will see that God's alive and has saved you. You will be a, a witness or a testimony. He told the younger women, that they were to love their own husbands, be submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled so that the word of God wouldn't be opposed, but it would be respected. So we're to live in a way, an upright way that is a testimony to others. Self-control, upright as well. We are to live godly lives. What is that? A godly life is living a life like God empowered by God, influenced by God. A godly life is not taking a checklist and just doing the external things on the checklist. That's Pharisaism. That's what the Pharisees did. They had a list of rules, some of them biblical, many of them not biblical. And so they did all of these things to manage their life, to make themselves right with God. Godliness means that we've been rescued by grace, Jesus Christ. We're being taught, schooled, equipped by grace. We're actually changing from the inside so that we have new desires. We, many of the old desires aren't there. Some still are, but many aren't. And there's new desires. And so we are being changed to be more like God. We're not just doing external things. We're different people. We're new creations. God dwells in us and is empowering us to obey his scripture. So that's what a godly life is all about. It's not merely external standards. It's a motivation of grace from God working in our hearts. And we're to do that now. He says, live godly lives in the present age, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's another appearing, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace appeared Bringing salvation, saving people. Grace appeared. Grace is going to appear again. There's going to be another appearing. And that appearing is going to be Jesus returning. And so we live in this present age between his first appearing, which is when Christ came at Christmas. We celebrate this at Christmas. And his second coming, which is return. We do not know when that will be. The Bible does not tell us when he will return, but he is going to return. And when he returns, he will grant resurrection bodies to the living and he'll call the dead out of the grave and grant them a resurrection body. And when we, the Bible says, when we see him, we will be like him. So there's coming a day when Christ returns that we will be like him. We will receive a spiritual body. We will be without sin, without pain, without sorrow, without death anymore. So that's the day we're to anticipate. Live in anticipation of that day, looking forward, and live looking backward, aware that grace appeared, bringing salvation to all people, and now trains us to live godly lives in the present. So we live in the present, looking to the past, and looking to the future. Here's how some theologians have said it. We live in the in-between times. In between his first coming and his second coming, we live in the period that is already, but not yet. What does that mean? It means the grace of God has already appeared. We already have new life. We're already new people. We're already forgiven. Already right now, all your sins are forgiven. If you're a Christian, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. So already grace has made you a new person, has given you spiritual life. You're in the light and no longer in the dark. That's already happened. But God's work in our lives is not yet. It's not yet complete. So there's coming a day where we'll be radically different. 
where we will no longer have temptation. Can you imagine? No longer have sin. That we'll no longer sin and hurt someone else and we'll no longer be hurt by someone else's sin. And we're not yet there. Which means I could sin against you and you could sin against me and we could harm one another and have to get reconciled. Because we're not yet in heaven. Which is a very good thing to remember. Especially if you have a two-year-old. You are not yet in heaven. Just tell yourself that and it'll, it'll help. It really will. It'll help just give realistic expectations. We're not yet in heaven. We're already new people, but we're not yet what we will be when we are new in, in body as well and free from temptation. So we're to live, he says, in the present age. We're to live in the power of the already, the spirit of God living in us, this grace that is training us to say no and to say yes. But we also live anticipating the blessed hope, our great hope, Our great hope is his return when he makes all things new. That's our great hope, so we're hoping for that. Now, here's what I find in my own life and in those I uh, have the privilege to talk to and, and counsel and those kinds of things, is that we can live too much in the not yet, or we can live too much in the already and miss the balance that the Scripture has. Here's how this works. If we live too much in the not yet, then we live mostly aware of how far we still have to go. You know, we look towards that blessed hope and say, everything will be different then, but nothing's really different now. We live with a primary identity as a sinner. So we look at this and say, well, I'm primarily someone who still lives pretty much ungodly. I'm primarily someone who still lives pretty much with worldly passions. I'm not very self-controlled, upright, godly. So you're really a Christian, but you're just so aware of your sin, so aware of how far you have to go. You don't think a lot about what Christ did for you and what difference that really makes. You think a lot about how far you still have to go, how you don't measure up to others who are really godly, how you don't measure up, most importantly, to Christ who is perfect. And you realize how far you have to go. You spend a lot of time aware of your failures, discouraged, feeling sort of condemned. Even on a good day, there's sort of that gnawing feeling in the back of your mind, the back of your soul, that God's probably somewhat displeased with you. I mean, he's happy about other people, but he's probably somewhat displeased with you because he knows what you did and he knows what you're not doing and you're really not measuring up. You tend to look inward a lot. You're introspective, looking inward, uh, aware of failure. You live in the not yet. And so you're just living for, well, one day it'll be different. Right now, I'm pretty much like everybody else, Christian or non-Christian. I'm just forgiven. That's the only difference. I'm pretty much like my neighbor. I'm just forgiven. It's a very hopeless way to live, and it's very unbiblical because it's denying the reality that grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce godliness, training us to say yes to self-control. It is is a failure to recognize what has already happened. It's a failure to be aware of your justification. Justification is when you believe in Jesus Christ, he declares you righteous. Righteous. He says, you are right with me. God the Father says, I will relate to you like I relate to my own son, Jesus. I will love you as much as I love Jesus. I will welcome you as much as I welcome my own son. As a matter of fact, I'm going to see you in him and through him because you're joined to him. It's the good news of justification that we cannot be more forgiven than we are or more welcomed than we are before God right now. And so if you live aware of the not yet how far you have to go, then you should come back to the already and say, what has Christ done for me and what difference does that make for me today? It makes all the difference. Some of us live too much in the already and we don't live very much in the not yet. So in other words, the opposite. We're very aware of what Jesus has done for us. We're very aware of what it means to be a new creation in Christ. And for us, grace means, well, we don't really have to talk. You know, we don't really have to talk about sin. So you don't really want to hear about sin or repentance or anything like that because that's a denial of the truth that it's all of grace and that I'm right with God, which is true. And so there's not this pressing on 
in godliness like the Bible describes. There's not this desire to grow and to mature. There's not this willingness, even eagerness, to identify sin in my own life so that I confess that and am changed uh, all the more as I'm conformed to the image of Christ. It's just this don't talk about sin, that's condemnation. Any mention of sin is legalism. Any mention of sin is introspection. Any mention of sin is condemnation. And so that's, I'm living in the already of what Christ has done, but it's a failure to recognize what Christ wants to do between now and the time of his return, which is what? Well, it is to train me to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passion, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. See, living in the already like this ignores all the commands of the New Testament, the old as well, all the commands of the New Testament. And so, If this is who you are, then it's helpful to live in the good of our justification, but to recognize our sanctification that God is changing us and conforming us. He is making us different, that repentance is part of the Christian life. It's not just what you do to get in the door. It's the lifestyle once you're in. And so a balanced approach is to be gripped by grace, to say, I am welcomed and loved by God. I am declared righteous. I have been rescued. The spirit of God lives in me to change me and to conform me to the image of Christ. And now day by day, living secure in God, I'm not working to be accepted. I'm accepted. I'm beloved. And now I want to, to honor the rescuer, to love the savior. I want to say no to things. I want to say no to the mud living as if he hasn't rescued me. And I want to say yes to him. So yes, by grace, I'm repenting by grace. I'm being changed by grace. I'm becoming more and more what he's already declared me to be. He's declared me to be righteous. And now he's conforming me into that righteousness for the rest of my life. Justification and sanctification. We want to live with a balanced already. I'm secure in the already, but I'm pressing on in the not yet. Not living for one or the other. And, and most of us don't live quite that balanced. We live more aware of one or the other, but God wants us to be aware of both. So he says, this is, we're awaiting the change, the final change of his return. Verse 14, he gave himself, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I love these verses. Look what it says. Jesus gave himself. How did he do that? He died on the cross for us. He gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness. NIV says wickedness. To redeem us. What does redeem mean? It means to buy back. It's from the slave trade. And when, when someone bought a slave, they redeemed them. And so that then they were free. Jesus gave his life. Here's a different picture than the rescuer. Jesus gave his life to buy us out of slavery so that sin is no longer our master. We are controlled by sin. We are dominated by sin as an unbeliever. Sin is our master. Jesus comes and he says, I pay the price. I want him freed. I want her freed. And then we are freed. We have a new master. Our new master is Jesus. Jesus gave his life so that sin is no longer our master, so that Satan is no longer our master. Jesus is our master. This is great news. And he did this to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He loves us. He possesses us. He is our, the father to us as children. He is the great shepherd to us as sheep. And he possesses us in his love and by his grace, and he's purifying us. See, he redeems us saying, sin's no longer your master. And now for the rest of your life, I'm in the process of purifying you. Been declared pure, but I'm still purifying you. That's justification and sanctification. So he is purifying us, making us more and more like Jesus. And we should expect that that's going to be a fruitful process. We should have great expectation that we grow a lot in godliness. Not that we just eke in, but that we are radically changed. So there should be expectation of that God really will change us, that we really will grow in godliness. Not that we will be essentially the same people as the day we were converted, we're just forgiven. We are forgiven, and it's never just forgiven. We are gloriously forgiven, but we're being conformed to his image as well. And the last phrase, they are for his, we are for his possessions who are zealous for good works. Peter, I mean, uh, Titus is to declare these things. 
He is to exhort. That means he's to encourage everybody in the grace of God. He's to rebuke. That means those who don't believe this, who think it doesn't matter how they live or who are trying to live legalistically to please the Lord, uh, they're to be rebuked and corrected. He's to do that with all authority, and he's to let no one disregard you. He's saying, Titus, bring it. Don't shrink back. You declare the truth and allow God to work through the truth. Now, this last phrase here before 14, that he is purifying a people who are zealous for good works. I mean, it's just not a phrase that I use a lot or think about a lot. I don't talk even about zeal or zealous that much, really. It's not a word in my vocabulary that often, but it's a biblical word. Zealous, it means eager, passionate, enthusiastic, driven, compelled. Zealous for what? Good works. Grace produces godliness. The grace of God appeared bringing salvation, teaching us to say no and to say yes, and to be zealous for good works. Grace makes us hungry for good works. Grace makes us driven for obedience, not to be accepted by God. Grace means we're already accepted by God. And so we want to honor the rescuer with a life lived for his glory. Zealous for good works. See, here's, what, here's, here's how it goes sometime, and this is not true. People say, well, I, I'm not into works, I'm into grace. Grace is not anti-works. Grace is anti-works if you mean by works, I'm going to do good things so God will accept me. Grace is totally opposed to that kind of work. But grace is not only opposed to works for the Christian. The Bible is saying here that Jesus saved you for good works. That's the whole purpose of his saving you is to purify you and make you zealous for good works. Think about this very familiar passage. If you've been around the church, you've heard this, these verses, Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. How are you saved? I receive a gift and I receive it by faith. It's all what Christ has done. It goes on to say, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So I'm not saved by what I do, or I'd say, look at me, I'm good. God, God accepted me. I, I boast in Jesus because I'm saved by grace. Now, we, we're pretty familiar with that. Perhaps you are. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's not the result of works. You know what the very next verse says? We are his workmanship, he made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which, he, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's what he's saying. You are saved by grace and not your works. And you know why you're saved? So that you can do good works, empowered by Jesus, empowered by grace. Not so to earn his favor because you've already got his favor. Not so that your standing is secure, but because your standing is already secure. Therefore, live a godly life. Live a godly life. We are prepared for this. See, it is not... It is the new life in us that produces these good works. It is grace that produces them. And we respond. We choose to respond to grace. And those works occur in our lives. I heard an illustration that was helpful to me uh, about how this works. And someone said it's kind of like a live oak tree. Now, I apologize. I don't have good tree illustrations like Pete does. He's got great tree illustrations about an entire forest that died in his front yard. And... Uh, <laughs> So I don't have good tree illustrations, so I want to warn you ahead of time, this will, be, uh, this will not be as passionate as his stories. Uh, but, uh, but it's like a live oak. Have you ever seen a live oak? The, the, all of the leaves do not come off. They kind of, when the winter comes, they hang on there. And he was saying this, that when the, the way the, the leaves come off, or at least the final leaves come off a live oak, is in the springtime. When new life is permeating through the tree and through the branches and through the buds so that new leaves come in and the new leaves push out the old leaves. He's saying that's the Christian life. It's not that you just say no to a lot of stuff. It's new life, the Spirit of God living in us, helping us to apply and obey the Scripture. The Holy Spirit is new life coming through us that is pushing off the old, that is getting rid of the mud, the life of Jesus Christ in us, in union with him. That is causing us to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and yes to the passion of glorifying God through a godly life. That new life pushes out the old. Paul says it this way, put off the old, put on the new. 
He doesn't mean you just do that solely in your own strength. He says, by grace, you were created for works and the life of God in you produces those works as you cooperate with his grace and obedience. Zealous. I was just asking myself, am I zealous for good works? Are you zealous for good works? Are we as a church, are we zealous for good works? Are we, would we be known? That church, oh, that's the people, they are zealous. They may not use those words, but they're zealous for good works. They are passionate, driven, compelled to honor their God. Now, they may not know that's the Holy Spirit working in us. They just see the outward results. Are you zealous for godliness? Are you zealous for self-control? This chapter two talks a lot about self-control. Are you zealous for, are you passionate about the Holy Spirit granting you self-control? Now, I'm not talking about the kind of control that like controls everything, like you're a controlling person. Yeah, I'll talk about self-control and, you know, I'm, I'm not spending anything and I'm not eating anything and whatever. I've just got this control my own little life. I'm making everything. I'm not talking about that kind of control. I'm talking about trusting the Holy Spirit to give you his power to say no to ungodly impulses and yes to godly impulses. Am I zealous about that? Are, are you zealous to love? Are you zealous, passionate for reconciliation in any broken relationship? If you have a broken relationship in your life, are you zealous to see that restored? Are you zealous to care for those in need? To look beyond our own needs and to see those around us who are in need and to be zealous to care for their needs? Are you zealous to share the gospel, the good news with those who don't know it? Are we zealous to give of our finances, to give of our time, to give of our energy because we are just passionate about the spirit working through us and living a life that honors the rescuer. We're rescued for a purpose. Grace replaces worldly passions with a zeal for good works. Are you zealous about your marriage? Not zealous that your spouse will change. That's not what I mean by that. (laughs) But zealous that God will help you change, that God will give you a heart for your spouse. If you're a young person here today, or even an older person, um, are you zealous to honor your father and mother? It looks different if you're a teenager versus, you know, if you're much older, it may look different. But are you zealous to honor your parents' young people in obeying them? Is that something you're passionate about? Somebody say, what are you passionate about? You say, I'm passionate about honoring my father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise. I'm passionate about that. Jesus rescued me to honor my father and mother so that I could do that by his grace. If you're single, are you passionate to walk in purity? And are you passionate to make your life count in the kingdom of God during this, your single years? Which may be a season or maybe forever for the rest of your life. I don't know. But he passionate to say, I am zealous to use my time to, in an undistracted manner, give of myself to the kingdom of God. Are you zealous as a mother or father to love your children and train your children to know God? Are you zealous not to exasperate them? Are you zealous for prayer, zealous for God's word? I don't know about you, but I can look, especially at kind of a lazy, hazy weekend like this, and you may say, well, I'm just, why are you talking about zealous? It's amazing. I'm just here this weekend. But uh, we may not feel too zealous. But God calls us to be zealous for good works. And here's the amazing thing. He doesn't say, get more willpower to get zealous. He doesn't say, you need to do more good works or just get fired up. Just get motivated. Here's how we grow in zealousness for good works. We go back to the grace that has appeared. We say, I'm to be zealous for good works. Why? Because grace has appeared. And we look at, we read about, we worship the rescuer. We think about the one who gave his own life to rescue us. We think about his grace. We think about the love. We're to be motivated by the love of a God who gave himself for us. Motivated by love. Motivated by his grace. We're to think about that. And if that doesn't fire our hearts, then we need to spend some more time thinking about who he is and what he's done, considering his grace and his love, considering his zealous love for his people that caused him to give his own life.
And then we want to be trained by that grace. We want to consider what he's done and what our response should be. Trained by grace. Not so that he'll love us. He already loves us. It's because he loves us. Not because we want to be secure with God. You're already secure. He already welcomes you to a throne of grace. And because of that, we are to think about his training and his teaching of grace, which calls us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. We're to think about his coming. We're to think about what it'll be like at his next appearing. What will it be like when he appears and we are resurrected and we were with him, we are like him, and we are with him forever? That's to motivate how I live in this present age. I think about his first appearing. I think about his coming, his soon coming. And I'm motivated by grace, taught by grace, empowered by grace, trained by grace to have my heart stirred for zealousness, zealous for good works. I am to realize he redeemed me and is purifying me. He is already at work in me. I'm to ask him and pray that he would stir my heart to live in a way that would reflect him. So it's not gritting our teeth and getting more willpower. It's considering the grace that has appeared and will appear and living in light of that truth, free, knowing that we're already freed, knowing that we're already delivered from the power of sin and that we're wanting to live zealous for good works, self-control, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do we have a ways to go? Absolutely. There's a not yet, but there's an already as well. He's already at work. He's already declared us righteous. So let's live in the middle of his first and second coming, zealous for good works. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to be zealous for you We want to be zealous for the one who has appeared and brought salvation to us. We want to be zealous for your glory and your fame, your reputation and your name. We want to be a people who love you because you first loved us and who are living lives that reflect your love. So, Lord, please empower us. Make us a people zealous for good works. Lord, I pray for those who who in the room perhaps feel very aware of what you've done for them and are just living in grace but aren't really living in a grace that teaches us to say yes and to say no. Lord, for those of us living there, I pray that you would call us forward in in holiness, Lord, that we would live and be conformed to what you've already declared to be true about us. Lord, for those of us who who live just in the not yet aware of our failures. I pray that you'd come with your grace and just wash over us, helping us to be aware of our security and welcome in you, Lord. We pray that we would not live as if you hadn't come and as if you hadn't saved us, but we'd live in response to you. Lord, I pray that for our whole church. Lord, make us a people, who not who are legalistic, but who are zealous for good works, empowered by grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.